Chapter 7 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 7 Footnote The Adventures of Consuelo, already published, may have been forgotten by the reader. The authors thought best to condense them as much as possible. Those persons who are so fortunate in memory as to retain the whole of a long history will find this repetition wearisome. They are requested to skip this chapter in order not to fatigue their attention. I was born in I know not what corner of Spain, I know not exactly in what year, but I must be about twenty-three or twenty-four years old. I am ignorant of my father's name, and as to that of my mother, I believe that she was uncertain about her parents as I am. She was called at Venice the Zingara, and I the Zingarella. My mother had given to me, as my patron saint, Maria del Consuelo, or as you would say, Our Lady of Consolation. My earlier years were wandering and miserable. My mother and I traveled over the world on foot, living by our songs. I have a vague remembrance that, in the forest of Bohemia, we received hospitality at a chateau, where a handsome youth, the Lord's son, named Albert, loaded me with attentions and kindness, and gave a guitar to my mother. That chateau was Giant's Castle, of which I was one day to refuse to become the chatelaine. That young lord was Count Albert de Rudelstadt, whose wife I was to be. At ten years old, I began to sing in the streets. One day when I was singing my little song on the place St. Mark at Venice, in front of a cafe, Master Porpora, who was there, struck by the justness of my voice and the natural method which my mother had transmitted to me, called me, questioned me, followed me to my garret, gave some assistance to my mother, and promised her to get me into the Scolo Dei Mendicanti, one of those free schools of music of which there are so many in Italy, and whence come all the eminent artists of both sexes for they are directed by the best masters. I there made rapid progress, and Master Porpora conceived a friendship for me, which soon exposed me to the jealousy and ill turns of my comrades. Their unjust treatment and the contempt they manifested for my rags early gave me the habit of patience, of reserve and resignation. I cannot remember the day on which I first saw him, but it is certain that at seven or eight years old, I already loved a young man, or rather a child, an orphan, abandoned, studying music like myself, by means of protection and charity, living like me upon the pavement. Our friendship, our love, for it was the same thing, was a chaste and delicious sentiment. We passed together in an innocent vagabondism, those hours which were not devoted to study. My mother, after having uselessly opposed it, 
sanctioned our inclination by the promise she exacted from us at her deathbed to be married to each other as soon as our labor should place us in a position to bring up a family. At the age of 18 or 19, I was quite advanced in singing. Count Zastiniani, a noble Venetian, proprietor of the St. Samuel Theater, heard me sing at church and engaged me as first cantatrice to replace Carilla, a handsome and powerful virtuoso, whose lover he had been and who was unfaithful to him. This Zastiniani was, in fact, the protector of my betrothed Anzaletto, who was engaged with me to sing the first man's parts. Our debuts were announced under the most brilliant auspices. He had a magnificent voice, an extraordinary natural facility, an attractive person. All the handsome ladies patronized him. But he was lazy. He had not had so skillful or so zealous a master as mine. His success was less brilliant. He was grieved at first, then vexed, and lastly jealous, and thus I lost his love. Is it possible, said the Princess Amelia, for such a cause? Then he was very vile. Alas, no, madam, but he was vain and an artist. He obtained the protection of Carilla, the disgraced and furious cantatrice, who stole his heart from me and quickly led him to offend and wound mine. One evening, Master Porpora, who had always opposed our affection, because he pretends that a woman, in order to be a great artist, must remain free from all passion, from all engagement of the heart, discovered to me Anzaletto's treachery. The next evening, Countess Tiniani made to me a declaration of love, which I was far from expecting and which deeply offended me. Anzaletto pretended to be jealous, to believe me corrupted. He wished to break with me. I fled from my lodgings in the night. I went to my master, who is a man of prompt inspiration, and who had accustomed me to be prompt in execution. He gave me some letters, a small sum of money, and a direction for my journey. He placed me in a gondola, accompanied me to the mainland, and I departed alone at break of day for Bohemia. For Bohemia, said Madame de Kleist, who, at the porporina's courage and virtue, opened her eyes very wide. Yes, Madame, resumed the young girl. In our language of adventurous artists, we often say, to tramp in Bohemia to signify that we embark in the hazards of a poor, laborious, and often culpable life, in the life of the Zingari, who were also called Bohemians. As to myself, I departed, not for that symbolical Bohemia, to which my fate seemed to destine me like so many others, but for the chivalric country of the Tekics, for the fatherland of Hus and of Ziska, for the Burmawald. In fine, for Giant's Castle, where I was generously welcomed by the family of the Rudelstadts. And why did you go to that family, asked the princess, who listened with great attention. Did they recollect having seen you when a child? By no means, I did not recollect it myself. 
and it was not till long afterwards and by chance that Count Albert remembered and helped me to remember that little adventure. But my master Porpora had been very intimate in Germany with the respectable Christian de Rudelstadt, head of this family. The young Baroness Amelia, niece of the latter, required a governess, that is, a lady companion, who should pretend to teach her music and relieve her from the monotony of the dull and austere life they led at Riesenberg, Giant's Castle. Her noble and good family welcomed me as a friend, almost as a relation. I taught nothing, in spite of my goodwill, to my pretty and capricious pupil, and... And Count Albert fell in love with you, as must needs be. Alas, madam, I cannot speak lightly of so grave and so painful a matter. Count Albert, who passed for a crazy man, and who united to a sublime soul, to an enthusiastic genius, strange eccentricities, an entirely inexplicable disease of the imagination. Supperville told me of all that, without believing it, and without making me understand it. People attributed to the young man supernatural qualities, the gift of prophecy, second sight, the power of making himself invisible. His family related strange things on these points, but all that is impossible, and I hope that you have no faith in it. Spare me, madam, the suffering and the embarrassment of deciding upon facts which are beyond the scope of my understanding. I saw inconceivable things, and, at certain times, Count Albert appeared to me a being superior to human nature. At others, I saw in him only an unfortunate, deprived of the light of reason, from the very excess of his virtue. But at no time did I see him like to common men, in delirium as in calmness, in enthusiasm as in depression. He was always the best, the most just, the most wisely enlightened, or the most poetically exalted of men. In a word, I cannot think of him or utter his name without a thrill of respect, without a deep tenderness, without a kind of horror. For I am the involuntary, but not entirely innocent cause of his death. Come, dear Countess, dry your beautiful eyes, take courage and continue. I listen to you without irony and without profane levity. I swear it to you. He loved me at first, without my having a thought of it. He never spoke to me, did not even seem to see me. I believe that he first perceived my presence in the chateau when he heard me sing. I must tell you that he was a great musician, and that he played the violin as nobody imagines it can be played. But I really believe I was the only person who ever heard him at Riesenberg for his family never knew that he possessed this incomparable talent. His love had its origin, therefore, in a transport of enthusiasm and musical sympathy. His cousin, the Baroness Amelia, who had been betrothed to him two years and whom he did not love, felt vexed with me, although she did not love him either. She declared this to me with more frankness than wickedness, for in the midst of her caprices, she had a certain greatness of soul. 
she became tired of Albert's indifference, of the dullness of the chateau, and one fine morning left us, carrying off, so to say, her father, Baron Frederick, Count Christian's brother, an excellent and weak man, indolent in mind and simple of heart, slave of his daughter and passionately fond of the chase. You say nothing of Count Albert's invisibility, of those disappearances of fifteen or twenty days after which he suddenly reappeared, believing or pretending to believe that he had not left the house, and not able or not willing to tell what had become of him while they were searching for him everywhere. Since Monsieur Supperville has related to you this fact, apparently so marvelous, I will give you the explanation. I alone can do so, since this matter has always remained a secret between Albert and myself. Near Giant's Castle there is a mountain called the Schreckenstein, Stone of Horror, which conceals a grotto in several mysterious chambers, ancient subterranean constructions of the time of the Hussites. Albert, after having gone through a series of very bold philosophical opinions and religious enthusiasms, carried even to mysticism, had remained a Hussite, or more properly speaking, a Tavarite in his heart. Descended by the mother's side from the King George Podibrad, he had preserved and developed in himself the sentiments of patriotic independence and of evangelical equality, with which the preaching of John Huss and the victories of Jean Ziska have, so to speak, inoculated the Bohemians. How she talks history and philosophy, cried the princess, looking at Madame de Kleist. Who would have told me that a girl of the theater would understand those things as well as I, who have passed my life studying them in books? I told you, de Kleist, that there were, among those beings whom the opinion of courts consigns to the lowest ranks of society, understandings equal, if not superior, to those which are formed in the highest with so much care and expense. Alas, madam, returned the porporina, I am very ignorant, and I had never read anything before my residence at Riesenberg. But there I heard so much of these things, and I was obliged to reflect so much in order to understand what passed in Albert's mind, that I was at last enabled to form an idea of them. Yes, but you have become mystical and somewhat crazy yourself, my child. Admire the campaigns of Jean Ziska and the Republican spirit of Bohemia, if you will. I consent to that, for on those matters my ideas are quite as Republican as your own, perhaps. For to me also, love has revealed a truth opposed to what my schoolmasters taught me, about the rights of the people and the merit of individuals. But I do not share your admiration for the Taborite fanaticism and their delirium about Christian equality. That is absurd, cannot be realized, and leads to ferocious excesses. That throne should be overturned, I consent, and would myself labor at the work in case of need. That republic should be established after the manner of Sparta, of Athens, of Rome, or of ancient Venice, that is what I can admit. But your sanguinary 
and filthy taborites are no more to my liking than the Vaudois, a flaming memory, the odious Anabaptists of Munster, and the Picards of ancient Germany. I have heard Count Albert say that all those were not precisely the same thing, replied Consuelo modestly, but I should not dare discuss with your highness upon subjects which you have studied. You have here historians and learned men who have attended to these important matters, and you can judge better than I can of their wisdom and their justice. Still, even if I had the happiness to have a whole academy to instruct me, I do not think my sympathies would change, but I resume my recital. Yes, I interrupted you by pedantic observations, and I ask your pardon. Continue. Count Albert, proud of the exploits of his fathers. That is very easily understood and very pardonable. In love with you, moreover, which is more natural and more legitimate still, would not admit that you were not his equal before God and before men. He was quite right. But was that a reason for deserting his father's house and for leaving all his family in affliction? I was coming to that, resumed Consuelo. He went to reflect and meditate in the Hussite grotto at the Schreckenstein, and he took the more delight in it because only he and a poor crazy peasant who followed him in his wanderings knew of those subterranean abodes. He became accustomed to retire there every time any domestic trouble or violent emotion caused him to lose his self-command. He could feel the approach of his attacks, and to conceal his delirium from his terrified family, he reached the Schreckenstein by a subterranean passage he had discovered, the entrance to which was a cistern situated near his apartment in a flower garden. Once arrived in his cavern, he forgot hours, days, weeks, nursed by Zdenko, that poetic and visionary peasant, whose exultation was somewhat similar to his own. He had no thought of again seeing the light or of revisiting his family until the fit began to pass away. And, unhappily, these attacks became each time more intense and took longer to dissipate. Once, at least, he remained so long absent that they thought him dead, and I undertook to discover the place of his retreat. I succeeded with much trouble and danger. I descended into the cistern, which was in his garden, and by which I had one night seen Zdenko secretly ascend. Not knowing how to direct my course in those abysses, I came near losing my life. At last I found Albert, I succeeded in dispelling the sorrowful torpor into which he was plunged. I restored him to his family and made him swear never to return without me to his fatal cavern. He yielded, but he warned me that it was condemning him to death, and his prediction was but too well realized. How so? That was restoring him to life on the contrary. No, madam. Not unless I succeeded in loving him, and in never being a cause of regret to him. What, you did not love him? You descended into a well? You risked your life in that subterranean journey? With a simple Zdenko, 
not understanding my design and jealous, like a faithful and stupid dog of the safety of his master, was near murdering me. A torrent was near swallowing me up. Albert, not recognizing me at first, was near making me share his madness, the terror and emotion render hallucination contagious. Finally, he was seized with another fit of delirium while accompanying me through the subterranean galleries and almost abandoned me when closing the exit. I exposed myself to all this without loving Albert. Then you had made a vow to Maria del Consuelo to effect his deliverance? Something of that kind, in fact, replied the porporina, with a sad smile, a feeling of tender pity for his family, of deep sympathy for him, perhaps also a romantic attraction. Sincere friendship, certainly, but not a shade of love, at least nothing similar to that blind, intoxicating, and delightful love I had experienced for the ungrateful Anzaletto, and in which I verily believe my heart had been prematurely exhausted. What shall I tell you, madam? After this terrible expedition, I had a brain fever and was at the brink of death. Albert, who is as great a physician as he is a musician, saved my life. My slow convalescence and his assiduous cares placed us on a footing of fraternal intimacy. His reason was entirely restored. His father blessed me and treated me like a beloved daughter. An old humpbacked aunt, the canoness Wenselaw, an angel of tenderness but full of patrician prejudices, was herself resigned to accept me. Albert implored my love. Count Christian even became his son's advocate. I was troubled. I was terrified. I loved Albert as one loves virtue, truth, the beau ideal. But I was still afraid of him. I had a repugnance against becoming a countess, against contracting a marriage which would excite the nobility of the country against him and against his family, and which would cause me to be accused of sordid views, of mean intrigues. And then, must I confess it, it was my only crime, perhaps. I regretted my profession, my liberty, my old master, my artist's life, and that exciting arena of the stage on which I had appeared for an instant, to shine and disappear like a meteor. Those burning boards on which my love had been broken, my unhappiness consummated, which I thought I should always curse and despise, and where I nevertheless dreamed every night that I was applauded or hissed. This must seem to you very strange and miserable, but when one has been educated for the stage, when one has labored all one's life for the purpose of engaging in those combats and gaining those victories, when the first battle has been won, the idea of never returning there is as frightful as would be to you, madam and dear Amelia, that of being no longer a princess except upon the boards, as I am now twice every week. You are mistaken, you talk nonsense, my friend. If, from a princess, I could become an artist, I would marry Trenk, and I should be happy. You did not wish from an artist to become a princess in order to marry Rudelstadt. I see well that you did not love him, but that was not your fault. We cannot love whom we will. Madam, 
That is a proposition of the truth of which I should like much to be convinced. My conscience would be easy, but I have passed my life in the endeavor to solve this problem and have not yet succeeded. Let us see, said the princess. This is a grave matter, and as abbess, I must attempt to decide in cases of conscience. You doubt if we are free to love or not to love? You think, then, that love can make its choice and consult reason? It ought to be able to do so. A noble heart ought to subject its inclinations. I do not say to that worldly reason, which is only folly and falsehood, but to that noble discernment, which is but the appreciation of the beautiful, the love of truth. You are a proof of what I advance, madam, and your example condemns me. Born to occupy a throne, you have sacrificed false grandeur to true passion, to the possession of a heart worthy of your own. I, born to be queen also, upon the stage, have not had the courage and generosity to sacrifice joyously the tinsel of that lying glory to the calm life and sublime affections which were offered to me. I was ready to do it from devotedness, but I did not do it without sorrow and fear. And Albert, who saw my anxiety, did not wish to accept my faith as a sacrifice. He asked for me enthusiasm, partake in joys, a heart free from all regret. It was my duty not to deceive him. Besides, can one deceive in such matters? I therefore requested time, and it was granted me. I promised to do my best to attain a love similar to his. I did so in good faith, but I felt with terror that I could have wished not to be compelled by my conscience to make that formidable promise. Strange girl, you still loved the other, I would wager. Oh, my God, I thought indeed that I no longer loved him. But one morning, when I was waiting on the mountain for Albert to walk with him, I heard a voice in the ravine. I recognized a song which I had formerly studied with Anseletto. I recognized especially that penetrating voice which I had so loved, and that Venetian accent so sweet to my remembrance. I leaned forward. I saw pass a cavalier. It was he, madam. It was Anseletto. Eh, indeed. What was he doing in Bohemia? I learned afterwards that he had broken his contract, that he was flying from Venice in the resentment of Zestini Annie. After having become very quickly wearied of the quarrelsome and despotic love of Carilla, with whom he had successfully reappeared at the St. Samuel Theatre, he had obtained the favor of Clorinda, the second cantatrice, one of my old schoolfellows, whom Zestiniani had made his mistress. Like a man of the world, that is, like a frivolous libertine, the Count avenged himself by taking back Carilla without dismissing the other. In the midst of this double intrigue, Anseletto, bantered by his rival, became vexed, then angry, and one fine summer's night leaped with his whole weight upon the gondola in which Sustiniani was taking the air with Corilla. They escaped with an upset and a warm bath. The waters of Venice are not deep everywhere. But Anseletto, 
thinking with reason that this joke would carry him to the leads, took to flight, and directing his course towards Prague, passed by Giant's Castle. He passed on, and I joined Albert in making a pilgrimage to the Grotto of the Schreckenstein, which he desired to revisit with me. I was sad and agitated. I suffered in that grotto from the most painful emotions. The gloomy place, the Hussite bones, of which Albert had made an altar on the bank of the mysterious fountain, the admirable and heart-rending tones of his violin, I know not what terrors, the darkness, the superstitious ideas which recurred to him in that place, and from which I no longer felt strength to preserve him. Say all, he thought himself Jean-Ziska. He pretended to have an eternal existence, the memory of past ages. In fine, he had the madness of the Count de Saint-Germain. Well, madam, yes, since you know it, and his conviction in that respect made so vivid an impression upon me that instead of curing him of it, I have come almost to share it. Can your mind be weak, spite of your courageous heart? I can have no pretension to be a strong-minded person. Whence could I have derived that strength? The only solid education I ever received was given me by Albert. How should I not have yielded to his ascendancy and shared his illusions? There were so many, and such elevated truths in his mind that I could not distinguish error from certainty. I felt in that grotto that my reason was wandering. What terrified me most was that I did not find Zdenko there, as I had hoped. For several months Zdenko had not made his appearance, as he had persisted in his fury against me. Albert had sent him away, driven him from his presence, doubtless after some violent discussion, for he appeared to feel remorse. Perhaps he thought Zdenko had committed suicide on leaving him. At least he spoke of him in enigmatic terms and with mysterious reservations, which made me shudder. I imagined, may God pardon me that thought, that in an attack of delirium Albert, unable to make the unfortunate renounce, the idea of taking my life had taken his. And why did this Zdenko hate you so much? It was a consequence of his insanity. He pretended to have dreamed that I had killed his master and that I danced afterwards upon his tomb. Oh, madam, that ominous prediction was accomplished. My love did kill Albert, and a week afterwards I made my debut here in one of the gayest comic operas. I was compelled to do so, it is true, and I had death in my soul. But the melancholy destiny of Albert was accomplished, conformably to Zdenko's terrible prognostics. Really, your history is so diabolical that I hardly know where I am, and I seem to lose my wits in listening to you. But continue, all this will be explained without doubt. No, madam, the supernatural world which existed in Albert's and Zdenko's mysterious minds has never been explained to me. And you must, like myself, be contented with understanding the results. Well, Monsieur de Rodelstadt had not killed his poor fool, at least. 
Sedenka was not a fool to him, but a companion in misfortune, a friend, a devoted servant. He wept for him, but, thank heaven, he never had the thought of sacrificing him to his love for me. Still I, foolish and culpable, was persuaded that this murder had been accomplished. A freshly filled grave in the grotto, which Albert confessed to me contained what had been most dear to him in the world, before knowing me, at the same time that he accused himself of I know not what crime, caused me to be covered with a cold sweat. I thought it certain that Sedanko was buried in that place, and I fled from the grotto, crying like a crazy woman and weeping like a child. There was good reason for it, said Madame du Kleist, and I should have died of fear. A lover like your Albert would not have suited me the least in the world. My worthy Monsieur de Kleist believed in the devil and made sacrifices to him. It was he who made me such a coward, and I believe he would have made me crazy if I had not determined to divorce him. You have strong marks of it, notwithstanding, said the Princess Amelia. I think you were divorced a little too late. But don't interrupt our Countess de Rudelstadt. On returning to the chateau with Albert, who accompanied me without thinking, to justify himself against my aspersions, I found, guess whom, madam? Anzaletto? He had presented himself as my brother and was waiting for me. I know not how he had learned, while continuing his journey, that I was living there and was about to marry Albert for there was such a report in the neighborhood before anything was settled respecting the matter, either from spite or some remains of love, or from love of evil. He had retraced his steps with the sudden intention of preventing that marriage and carrying me away from the Count. He put every engine in motion to succeed, prayers, tears, temptations, threats. I was apparently immovable, but in the depths of my weak heart, I was agitated and felt no longer mistress of myself. By means of the lie which had served him as an introduction, and which I dared not unmask, though I had never spoken to Albert of this brother, whom I never had, he remained the whole day at the chateau. In the evening, the old count made us sing some Venetian airs. Those songs of my adopted country awakened in me all the recollections of my childhood, of my pure love, of my beautiful dreams, of my past happiness. I felt that I still loved, and not him whom I ought, whom I wished, whom I had promised to love. Anzaletto besought me to receive him that night in my chamber, and threatened that he would come in spite of me, at his own risk and peril, and especially at mine. I had never been other than his sister, Thus he colored his project with the best intentions. He would submit to my decision. He would depart at break of day. But he wished to say farewell. I thought that he wanted to make a noise in the chateau, to create scandal, that there would be some terrible scene with Albert, and that my reputation would be sullied. I conceived a desperate resolution and executed it. At midnight... I made a little bundle of the most necessary clothes, wrote a note for Albert, took the little money I had, and, by the way, forgot half of it, left my chamber, mounted the hired horse which had brought Anzaletto, 
paid his guide to assist my flight, passed the drawbridge, and reached the neighboring city. It was the first time in my life that I was ever on horseback. I rode four leagues at a gallop. Then I sent back the guide, and pretending to go and wait for Anzaletto on the road to Prague, I gave the man false information as to the place where my pretended brother was to find me. I took the road to Vienna, and at break of day found myself alone, on foot, without resources, in an unknown country, and walking as fast as possible in order to escape those two loves which appeared to me equally fatal. Still, I must say that after some hours, the image of the perfidious Anzaletto was effaced from my mind, never to return, while the pure image of my noble Albert followed me, like an aegis and a promise of the future, through the dangers and fatigues of my journey. And why did you go to Vienna rather than to Venice? My master pauper had just arrived there, brought by our ambassador, who wished to enable him to retrieve his fortune, which had been exhausted, and to recover his ancient glory, which had become dim and discouraged before the success of more fortunate innovators. I luckily met with an excellent youth, already a musician full of promise, who, passing through the Bermavald, had heard of me and thought of seeking me in order to ask my influence in his favor with Porpora. We returned together to Vienna on foot, after much fatigue, always cheerful, always friends and brothers. I was the more attached to him because he did not think of paying court to me and because I did not myself imagine that he could have such a thought. I disguised myself as a boy and played my part so well as to give occasion to all kinds of queer mistakes. But there was one which was almost fatal to both of us. I will pass over the others in silence, in order not to prolong this recital too much, and will mention this one only because it will interest your highness much more than all the rest of my story. End of chapter 7